Again, it's rather lovely to come and sit in the quiet of this hall with you. And I'm happy to see some of the coordinators here and aware that the, uh, so perhaps you are also aware the coordinators are on retreat these days, part of this retreat at this time. So probably this is as quiet as it ever gets at Guy House, the solitary retreat month and the coordinators also on retreat. And I'd like to speak this afternoon to offer some reflections on what it seems to me is one of the really most uh, important and really powerfully transformative areas of contemplation that we can engage with. And uh, this is something that the Buddha spoke of again and again. The, the contemplation that uh, in the tradition is called Marana Sati, the contemplation of death. This is one of the primary themes of the Dharma. And in the Buddha's own journey, in his own life, it was his encounter with death, and equally, of course, with ageing and sickness, those conditions which he recognises, in a way, being forerunners to death and harbingers, or, um, you know, we could say uh, advance warnings about the reality of our mortality. His encounter with that, he described as an encounter with heavenly messengers, as a, as something of an important encounter that led him, an incredibly important encounter, that led him on his search, that uh, gave him the both the, the inspiration, but also the commitment to go out and seek for his own deepening to seek for and to ultimately discover what it was that was possible for a human being, what it was that could be discovered by human endeavour. And so we can very usefully, I think, come back to a reflection upon our motivation, our intention, what it is that moves us to engage in our retreat, in our practice. And we might do this at the beginning, and we might do this in the middle, and we might do it usefully again, towards the end of any period of practice, coming back to this, and of course equally in our lives. It's very easy for us to kind of avoid being impacted by the reality of our mortality, by the reality, the truth, and the the immediate or imminent presence of what death is means for us. Reminders of this reality are therefore we regard in the tradition something incredibly important and useful, beneficial. Even though our culture, our society attempts to really avoid us having too much direct contact. As a culture, we kind of sweep it or tidy it up a little bit. And we we refer to it, of course. It's not like anyone denies it. But somehow something about really contemplating it isn't what we encourage, it seems. And there was a very... um, The fact that we're here sitting in this room at all has got... or derives to a significant degree from that. When we, um, Guy House, were still located... Um, about two miles away in the village of Denbury in the little vicarage that a few of you may remember. Um, it's a lovely place, but rather small. And we had a capacity of 35, which included getting 12 people to climb up a ladder into a loft. And uh, unfortunately, the health and safety people never found out. Um, but things were a little bit more um, rough and ready in those days. But we were looking to buy somewhere larger, and this place came on the market. At the time, it was um, owned by a community of, of nuns and uh, so it was, a, it was a convent. And the asking price, or what they were looking for, was just a bit beyond what we could actually possibly be able to get together to offer for it. And there was also a, a holiday, a place that wanted to make an old people's retirement home and a place that wanted to make a kind of a family holiday camp out of this place. 
And one of the things that was really important to the nuns was that the graveyard with all the the sisters who'd lived and died here and were buried there be really taken care of and respected. And for us, like it's a graveyard, great, we get to have our own graveyard. For the old people's home, mm, we don't really want a grave. We don't want all these people sitting looking at what's happening next. And a children's family camp, no way. So what was really interesting is that although we did not offer the highest amount of money for this place, the nuns actually gave it to us, partly because we were a spiritual organisation and they wanted something of that to continue here, but also, and I think in no small measure, because they saw that we would actually really care for and appreciate having a graveyard. And that we do. It's still it's a kind of a place we take care of and we're happy to have here. Certainly I am. And so there's this, this sense of, in the Dharma, being really invited to be enthusiastic and appreciative of the opportunity to encounter this teaching, this truth. And that's so, you know, opposite to what, what goes on normally. And I, I think I mentioned in the Q&A, was it maybe 10 days ago or something now? Um, maybe a little more. I, I mentioned the Q&A about the skeleton, because someone asked, and you know how people were worried in the organisation. Well, oh, if we have a skeleton, won't that scare people off? And it's like, but no. How important, how fortunate do we allow ourselves to face this? Because it's, it's so, so present around us all the time. And anything that helps us remember that is a blessing, really, truly a blessing. Just this morning I opened up my computer and looked on the the website of a newspaper from the, I'd like to say town, but it's really the whole half of New Zealand that it covers that I come from. And there was a story in the section relating to where I come from of, of an accident having happened. And it's kind of interesting because I often just have a look and see if something's happened in my home area. And in this occasion, very sadly, a, a guy who... I was at school with, he was in my brother's class, so two years older than me, but I knew him. And my brother would have known him very well. They were good friends. So I've seen him and known him. And he had an accident. In fact, someone pulled out in front of him when he was on a motorbike. And he died of the injuries, leaving behind two children, a grandchild and a partner. And just a little, you know, in one sense, it's to me meaningful and personal, to my brother more so to yourselves who wouldn't know this person. Dennis Cullen was his name. It's hard for it to have much meaning. And yet, when we actually just stop and think, yeah, that happens all the time. It happens all the time. To young people, old people, people we know, people we don't know. It happens all the time. I always reflect when talking about the theme on a friend of mine who in his early 30s was just walking through a room with another friend and suddenly just fell to the ground. Just fell to the ground. And within minutes he was dead. Brain aneurysm. Blood vessel burst in his brain. Killed him. Maybe took 180 seconds. Maybe 240 seconds. You know, two or three or four minutes and he's dead. Gone. And leaving behind, in this case, wife and child. He didn't get to say goodbye. He was just gone. Around the grounds here we have three trees planted for people who've died while either working at Gaia House or still very closely connected with Gaia House in terms of service. We haven't put plaques under the trees to say this tree was planted for Thomas who died of dengue fever in, in Burma or for Claire who died of cancer in the trees over there or Dave who's, who was working as one of the staff here when he died of cancer. Well, the trees are there, and they're part of what's here. And it touches me just sometimes to speak about them, just to remember the winter flowering cherry particularly. I had a particularly close connection with that person, Thomas, for many years. And so there's this reality for us. We all know this. We all have these stories. My stories aren't particularly unique. But we don't often really just bring them out and sit in their presence with each other or with ourselves. This human vulnerability. 
that we just don't know when or how it's going to happen. And the you know the amazement of a, a friend. Just, I remember still saying, you know, I was walking in this building and I walked out of the room, and then the roof fell in, just like that. I walked out of the room and then the roof fell in. And if I hadn't walked out of that room in that moment, I would have been there when the roof fell in. Just random roof falling in, you know. Whoops. <laughs> Any cracks? You know, actually <laughs> quite a few cracks. Mm. <laughs> you know, it does happen like that. Or, and it's slightly more humorous, but a woman in a, in a house in, um, I can't remember which, it's somewhere in the UK, a cow fell through her skylight because it was a sunken in-house and she has a bench where she sits working and a loom where she works at and a cow somehow got onto the le- level of ground above her house, walked across in such a way that she f- the cow fell through the skylight. And if she'd been sitting on the bench, she would have been crushed and she spends a lot of her day sitting on the bench. And so there's those moments where maybe we encounter the sense of, ah, it's close. It's not so far away from us. It's not so far away from us. This soft human body is subject to illness, to ageing, to inevitable death. And yet, what does that mean for us? What does it really mean for us? There's a great story from the Bhagavad Gita where in the narrative Krishna and Arjuna are having a conversation and Krishna, who represents wisdom but is also in this case the charioteer of Arjuna, the the hero we could say, and the warrior and Arjuna asks Krishna with your great vision of the universe and all of the cosmos, can you tell me what's the most miraculous thing that you see? And Krishna responds, he says, you know, the most, the greatest miracle that I see is that while for all people they see others dying around them, they somehow believe it will not happen to themselves. It's kind of miraculous the way in which we can seem to live as if we will escape this. And the Buddha's teaching and invitation to us around this, the, what I said, marana, mara's death, Maranasati, the charnel ground contemplations as they're sometimes called, where the Buddha instructed and invited us as practitioners to go out and look at a body that's dead or a body that's rotting or a body that's just become a skeleton or just scattered bones or a pile of dust. To actually go and look at this and to contemplate, this will happen to my body. I will not avoid this. To really let the truth of that in for us. I will not escape this. There's something kind of shocking about it. And yet more shocking is the fact that it could be shocking to us. Given that it's happened to everyone. Prior to this generation. He's no longer here. And this generation it will happen to us too. There's a, a wonderful <coughs> epitaph carved on a gravestone in, uh, I believe, a graveyard in Norfolk. I think it's an 18th century uh, grave. And on it it says, though it might have been updated if the language probably isn't exactly 18th century. I know, I don't know. But this is how it comes to me. I haven't actually seen it myself. But really, it, the, the the, the epitaph goes like this. It says, Remember, friend, as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. And it's like, in a kind of strange way, I love that this was the last offering of that person, this teaching that's there. What does it mean to prepare ourselves to follow whoever it was that wrote those words? words. And so in one of the the, the practices that the Buddha enjoins of us, and this is in the five daily reflections, he encourages us all to remember this every day, the five daily reflections. The first three of them, I can read them. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. 
I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. Every day to take a moment to remember, to reflect on, to let ourselves be touched by the truth of this. And to come back to this. It's so important. Because this fact, this truth, this reality of death asks us to look at our life. To not take it for granted. And it's not about somehow being gloomy or depressed or miserable, you know, oh gosh, we're all gonna die. You know, and it's not somehow macabre or, you know, death destruction, you know, kind of dark and all that. It's just this is how it is. And we want to be real to practice the Dharma. To say, to know, to understand, to realise what is most true, most real. We have to be willing to see also what is real at the level of this body and these forms. And as well as seeing that, of course, that reality of death intrudes and impinges upon us all, it also shows us something about what's precious here. That our very life is precious because it isn't forever. This opportunity to practice that our life gives us isn't forever. The good fortune of being able to hear the Dharma, being able to practice the Dharma, the incredible blessing of being able to to realize the Dharma. This is now available, but not forever, because we will not be here forever. And so we can use it well. There's this inspiration that comes to use our life well, to use our retreat well, to use our sitting well, to use this moment, because that's actually the only one we really have, to use it well. Not in some sense of, oh no, I've got to somehow get somewhere now, but what does it mean to be here fully? Uncompromisingly, unconditionally. To be here. And it's this contemplation of death that can give us a perspective on what's really important. What to prioritize, because there's so many things we could be doing that seem valid, wholesome, worthwhile in terms of practice, let alone in the world. But what really matters to us? There's a beautiful line from Don Juan, the uh, the shaman and uh, spiritual teacher of Carlos Castaneda that uh, referred to in the books of Carlos Castaneda where he speaks about living with death as your advisor and that living, he says, to live close to the truth of death is to end the accursed pettiness that plagues human beings who live their life as if death will never touch them. There's a way in which we get involved with such and entangled it seems with things that aren't really what's most important for us and we sort of know that but then we somehow forget it you know when the food isn't quite the way we want it and it spoils our day or when we're a bit annoyed with someone who's doing something annoying because you know sometimes people do we, we were just if we would just contemplate it the fact that I'm not here forever and neither are they What might that do to our relationship? What might that do to the way we're orienting our priorities? There's a a very touching story I once uh, heard about of an experiment that was done in a prison in Texas where they had a very significant population on death row. Texas, one of the states in America that executes quite a substantial number of people. And prisons are known, and particularly prisons with the kind of the most serious offenders incarcerated in them, are known as places that are quite violent and aggressive and dangerous and scary to be in. And the culture is often very brutal amongst the prisoners. But on this, and the prisoners who are mostly locked up in rooms by themselves most of the time and then have a little bit of time together and when they get to do their exercise or at meal times. And in this particular experiment, they they created a workshop situation where a number of the people on death row were given some shared tasks to do together. And they were supervised 
um, quite closely in a certain way, but also they were actually placed together and left in, to work together for some reasonable periods of time. And what was really interesting, what was noticed was that they actually very quickly shifted into a way of relating which a lot of kindness and sensitivity and care was being expressed. And after the experiment, they, one or two of them were asked, or a few of them, I think, were asked, so what went on? What was going on there? Because the, the people were interested to see, how did this happen? And, and the response of the prisoners was various forms of, quite simply, you know, we all know that we're going to die. And when that shared knowledge informs a community of people, how they relate to each other, even though some of them were violent offenders, very violent, and probably most of them, in fact, something changes for us. When we contemplate, even with those people we feel threatened by or angry towards, that they will not be here forever, and that neither will I, that we share this with our friends equally as with our enemies. And with all beings. The Buddha once said to his monks after he'd found them engaged in some sort of unpleasant and uh, sort of strongly conflictual um, arguing, he said, You know, knowing that you will die, how can you quarrel? It's a really useful reflection to bring ourselves. Knowing that we will die, how can we quarrel? And sometimes when we're really hard on ourselves, judgmental, blaming, critical towards ourselves, we could also ask a similar question. Knowing that I will die, how might I wish to relate to myself? How would I relate to myself on my deathbed if I could meet myself there? Would it not be likely I'd be a little kinder to myself in that moment? if I had that possibility. And so reflecting and contemplating on this truth, this reality of our mortality, can sometimes soften and open the the hardness and the defended, reactive closeness of our hearts. Just seeing what it's like to, you know, even look around. You don't have to, but... You know, all the people that we're sitting here with, our neighbours, and those not so far away, here in this room. We won't be here in probably 60 years. expect we'll all be gone. Maybe one or two of us might go a little bit beyond that. But not much. We'll all be gone. 60 years isn't that long. Quite a few of us have already lived that long. Not me. Not yet. But not so far away. Maybe we'll all be gone in 50 years. That's quite possible. But not for sure. So what we also can find perhaps is a a more easy spirit of generosity, equally as kindness, a sense of wishing to share what we have, because we don't get to keep it anyway. Does it really make sense to try and hold on to it all, heap up more of it? I was talking with a friend recently about a very tragic situation where some neighbours of ours, a similar age, we'd met them socially once or twice, didn't know them that well, quite Quite enjoyed them, and the um, the bloke. There were a couple with a teenage son, and uh, the guy had serious cancer, and he battled it, and five years survived beyond when he was not expected to have, but eventually and sadly succumbed. And uh, I was speaking with my friend about this, and uh, we were just talking about the the, the tragedy of that six months later. The uh, the wife died also, and the mother of the the teenage boy has sole surviving parent died in the night he found her in the morning in bed gone and just thinking what that was for that that boy and that uh, you know the loss of one's parents and that that happens to people but also thinking and remembering because this this friend had known them a little bit that the 
you know, the sort of the, the struggles with sort of worldly things they'd been involved with, and you suddenly realise that, oh, actually, some of those things weren't that relevant in the end. They just weren't, when you look at it from that point of view, that they were really just around for a few more years from when those struggles took place. I don't want to say anything more detailed, but, you know, seeing what's really important for us. What's really important for us? The Buddha himself put it in these terms. He said, you know, having encountered the four heavenly messengers, having lived a life of ease and comfort up until that point, age 29, or 27, I forget now. I think it was 29. He said, you know, why, being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, should I pursue other things which are also subject to birth, aging, sickness and death? Should I not seek for that which is no longer subject or not subject to birth, aging, sickness and death? And that's what led him out from the comfortable life that he was living to seek, to discover, to understand something more than what was apparently on offer in his world. When I was in my early 20s, I'd uh, completed a degree at university, worked absolutely really hard, sweated to get decent results and um, got a job with a good firm. And... Having really nothing much in the way of security behind me, my family having imploded when I was younger and uh, lost everything they had in material terms and almost everything they had in terms of relationships, um, there was really just me in terms of making it in the world, or so it seemed. And I had this job which would actually uh, take care of my worldly needs for me if I was to stay with it. And... um, at the same time, I realized that engaging in this kind of high-powered professional world, I was really unhappy, and that most of the people around me seemed kind of unhappy as well. No one seemed to really talk about that. And I really wanted to quit, but I was terrified of having to make it in the world without this one thing that I'd managed to get together in my life at that point. And uh, while I was at this job, uh, one of my, well, really my dearest friend from school had a uh, surgical misadventure that involved um, a routine operation going wrong and his intestines starting to die. And over the course of six months, further sections of it died and were removed, and each time trying to save the rest of it. And ultimately he lost the whole intestinal tract, and he was living with a pipe directly into his heart because all the blood veins, the vessels on his anywhere on his arms and legs and torso had been punctured so many times they'd collapsed. And the only way they could get any food into him, because he couldn't digest anything, was, was piping it directly into his heart. His body was emaciated, he was addicted to painkillers. And, um, and he had a, unhealing, a non-healing infection around the injection, the um, well, it's really catheter into the heart, the site here, and equally the place where his, uh, what was left of his intestines came out the side of his his torso and that was also infected and it was beyond being you know the the bugs and the drugs all of that it was not ever going to heal and so that's the quality of life he was looking at for however many years they could have kept him alive and he said he decided to to not do that and to ask them to turn it off and and he died a few well really 10 12 days after they turned that off for me, it was an incredibly painful and distressing loss. He was uh, a dear friend, and his family had been the place where I had stayed when mine had imploded. And so, um, so I kind of, yeah, I was really deeply distressed by his death. It was really hard, and there was something in it that, for me, was a really important gift because I got from that that my sense of, well, I need to change my life, but I, I'll do it later when I've got enough security, when I've sorted out things, when everything feels okay and safe, then I'll do what I want to do with my life. It really gave me the courage, and not just the courage, but the push, the impetus, to say, do it now. It was an incredible gift for me, Radar's death. We called him Radar in really large years. Do it now. There isn't some other time to live your life. 
It doesn't mean you have to give up your job and wander the planet. That's one way of looking at what's important. There are other ways. It doesn't mean you have to give up your retreat, go do something else. It might mean you just have a different sense of what this is for you. In fact, uh, you know, the question that sometimes asks is, what would you do if you knew today was the last day? How would we be if we knew this was our last period of time? And uh, in fact, um, about 15 years ago, Shadara, another Dharma teacher who teaches here, not so regularly here these days, but uh, some of you will know her, she was giving a talk here, and um, I think it might have been, oh, I can't remember when it was, but anyway, she, she basically asked that question, and uh, as a result of it, one of the staff actually quit and went home to Australia to be with their teenage children. Just, and it was kind of like, oh, that wasn't a good thing, was it? <laughs> it caused quite a problem for guy houses and organisations, and staff gone. But at another level, it's like, yeah, sometimes you get it. You think, oh, that's what's important to me. Whatever it might be. So what is it that's important to us? It's a poem by Mary Oliver I'd like to read. When Death Comes. She says, When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn... When death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps his purse shut. When death comes like the measle pox. When death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades. I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence. And each body a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride, married to amazement. I was a bridegroom, taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world <coughs> so to contemplate death is to really look at what does it mean to live well to live the fullness of the potential of what it means to be what we are. To not settle for comfort or just extending the duration of the existence as far as we're able to. And in terms of what's important, you know, the foundation of ethics in our life the Buddha speaks of is the basis for inner peace to the absence of regret that allows the mind and heart to settle that is the foundation for the calming and deepening of samatha and the framework again for the, for the opening of the, the heart and eye of wisdom just that simple caring for life as a foundation for life and equally a sense of completion of <coughs> of really taking care of the things that matter to us, saying goodbye, or thank you, or I'm sorry, or forgive me, or I forgive you, to those people we might want to have said that to before they die. Or even if they're already dead, where we might want to say it for our own well-being before we die. To take the opportunities that come for us to do that. My grandmother, who's... um. I think she's 97, or just about 97. I see her most every year. She lives in Sweden, though she's Bengali Indian. 
And when I teach in Sweden every year, I see her, spend a few days visiting my family there. And uh, the last few years, every time when I go, I'm thinking, she may not be there the next time I come back. And it's incredibly poignant and tender. I really am fond of her. I don't meet her till I was in my 20s and first travelling in, in India, in fact, where I first met her. And I haven't spent a lot of time with her in my life, but there's just something even more precious about the contact that's there, knowing that any of these days, weeks, months, she could be gone. And of course, when someone is 96, 97, that's so apparent. She gets sort of more transparent, translucent as the years go by. And yet, us too, us too, you and me and everyone we care for and love, yes, also, we also. Are you having trouble hearing at the back? Could you turn the volume up a little bit? Please feel free to say um, any time that's happening. You wouldn't be regarded as interrupting, but supporting. So, what does it mean to live this life? For now, for here, given that it, the future is uncertain, given that duration is un, is not guaranteed, to live our life in the light of death. Well, death illuminates our life. It's not something that shadows it or clouds it. Only our unwillingness to look at it and our tendency to look away from it is that's what shadows and clouds the life that we've associated with it's actually the fear of it and the unwillingness to face the truth of it, the unstoppable, unstoppableness of it. To look deeply into our life, we see that it, it, the reality of death punctures the sense of self-importance, the illusion, the idea that the world is rotating around me, much as the idea that the universe spins around planet Earth is a fabrication that was believe for many, many centuries. The world does not turn around us. It will get on when we're gone. Sometimes one of the useful things about being on retreat is that we actually get the, we give the world an opportunity just to practice getting on without us. It's a really kind and compassionate thing to do, to let the world just relax about the fact that one day it will have to get on without you and without me. And it won't be easy, that's for sure, but it will manage And of course, letting ourselves know that too. Ah, we can breathe out. Because although in one sense we can, through the seeing of our impermanence of death and seeing death, puncture the importance, the self-centered importance, it also shows us very clearly the preciousness of any and every life. <coughs> our life and the life of others is precious. Is precious, so precious. Because of its temporiness, its uncertainness, its unguaranteedness. It is precious. And the response to seeing that preciousness is, of course, from the heart. So much support for opening of the heart. In his book, um, Stephen Levine, who uh, wrote and uh, sort of created a whole practice based on the idea of living in the spirit of the imminence of one's death, and there's a practice and a course one could do called A Year to Live, where one lives the year as if at the end of it one will die, as if one had been given a final absolute terminal diagnosis, 12 months from now, gone. How would I live? And it's, a, it's, it's actually, a, I think, a very wonderful and powerful transformative orientation for one's life. And one of the things he says in the book, which I really love and struck me very much, he said, in the end, Love was the only rational act of a lifetime. I find that very beautiful because the sense of love and rationality are often seen as somehow different orientations. Like, sure, you can be loving and all that, but if you're going to be intelligent and rational, you've got to be hard-headed and, you know, do what you've got to do. That whole orientation we can find. And yet, in the truth of, in the face of our mortality, love is the only rational response. Nothing else makes sense. Nothing else makes sense. 
Love was the only rational act of a lifetime. And yet, again, turning to death, turning to the contemplation of death opens our heart because it requires us to move in a a contrary or counter direction to what the fear of death (coughs) would have us move, which is away from it. And whenever we're caught and moving from a place of fear, the heart is closing. That's what it does. That's how it works upon us. That's why it's painful. And that, of course, we can't fear death because we don't know what it will be. What we fear is our thought, our idea, our conception and our associations with death and how they affect us. Those thoughts, ideas, conceptions and associations to do with death, that's what we fear because if we turn towards them and we experience something unpleasant, we pull away. And that's what we do culturally and socially so much of the time. That's how we deal with it. We pull away. Death is ultimately the loss and the ending or the absence of a reference point for ourselves, For me, for this idea of who I am that we hold so tightly to. And it's scary from that place and point of view that this would have no reference point as something that's hard to handle. And ultimately all fear comes back down to this, this fear of death. That somehow that which we are afraid of, we believe in some way, has the power to annihilate us. And that's why we respond with so much intensity to it. Because our, our survival systems aren't really designed to differentiate between extremes or, or, or gradations of danger. Danger means death, and we react accordingly. And then the anticipation of danger, which is what fear is all about, rather than the presence of danger, the anticipation of danger provokes the same thing. And so we turn away from that which seems to provoke it. And yet in doing so, we so easily live unconsciously. And the real danger is to live our life asleep on autopilot. It's hard to do that when we contemplate the truth of death. I don't know if you have that experience just in hearing these reflections, but certainly I know in speaking about it and certainly for myself in reflecting on it, there is a vital sense of wanting to be present and awake in this life that comes quite naturally without needing to work on developing it. That's actually what happens when we allow ourselves to face this. And the Buddha, again, the Buddha said, you know, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless live as if already dead. To be unconscious is to be playing out patterns of the past, of dead life experience from before. It might be comfortable at times. and I don't imagine I'm saying this to you as if you've never heard it before. But it's somehow we can hear it and know it and yet not yet yet not yet fully be able to live from it or in contact with it in an ongoing way. So what is the death we can actually really encounter here? Because the death of our body, up until the point it happens, we can't. We can only anticipate it. Even if we're quite close to it, we can only anticipate what it might be when it comes. And once it's happened... Well, it's quite possible we can't relate to it at all at that point. We've got no idea what that's going to be like and what possibility there will be at that point. But what is actually here is the death that we can confront, which is the entry into the unknownness of life. What death stands for is the point at which the sense of I and self cannot engage, cannot refer, cannot project beyond. And to see what that's like. To actually allow ourselves to engage, to feel feel this. So often we deal with the reality of death by creating an artificial, constructed and socially or religiously agreed 
position to be sure of. And they tend to go in two ways, which is, there's nothing. It's just, poof, gone, all over. Modern scientific materialism and some strands of what calls itself these days secular Buddhism um, might suggest that's how it is. And then, of course, in other positions and places, you get the idea, well, there is something after death. There's heaven or there's rebirth or there's whatever we conceive of as going on. And either of those positions, if we take it as a certainty, as, oh, that's what's going to happen, then we actually create a further reference for the continuity of the sense of self. And self becomes either, I get to stop, because there's nothing, or I get to continue, because there's something. It can get a little bit more complicated if we want to try and say there's something and nothing, but mostly the positions we take to give us the certainty say either, there's something, after death or there's nothing after death and yet the truth is we don't know and to take either of those certainties as absolute is to lose the the potency of the contemplation of death that takes us to that edge beyond which the self cannot proceed and in the light of which the, the whole sense of self is shown as so much less substantial than we like to imagine. So what is it to die to the future, to die to the past, to die into this moment? It's not easy for us to do this. This is challenging. It's not a casual undertaking. One of the powerful, in a way, gatekeepers to this territory is the experience of loss and grief. Because death is associated with the loss of what we love and what we care for. The separation from that which we love and that which we care for. It's inescapable that this will take place. And so when we turn to death, we turn to the experience of loss and grief equally. And we have to actually open to the truth of that. It is part of what it means to love in this world, is to also know loss. To know the sweetness of love, we will also know the tender, painful sorrow and grief of loss. And sometimes it's just really important to let ourselves contemplate this. You know, what is that for us? And the story I heard, I think it was in the news last year, of a young teenage boy who got stuck on a railway line somehow, got his foot or part of his body trapped on the line. And there was a train coming, and he couldn't free himself. He has a mobile phone. He calls his dad. He says, Dad, I'm stuck on the rail line. There's a train coming. Help me. And what's that like for that boy talking to his dad? And what's that like for that dad talking to his boy on a train line as a train comes towards him? I'm guessing they didn't hang the call up. I don't know that. But I guess dad says, I'm coming. Or, I love you. But I've got no idea what what that would be like in one sense. And yet just letting myself contemplate, I feel, ah, yeah, that would be hard. And just letting ourselves know, ah, yeah, loss, grief, out of controlness, inability to preserve and protect even those who we love from that. Because we can't. And yet, in that grief and that sense of the possibility and actually the inevitability of loss, what challenges us is, or what opens also, is the the deeper well of loss, of all the losses we have known in our life or lives, depending on how we see and relate to that. But also the, the deeper, most fundamental loss in the very core of our hearts, our being, our lives, we could say, our, our minds and hearts, is the, the loss of connection to the, the deepest truths, 
the deepest knowable understanding, reality, that we could call the sacred, that we could call whatever we might wish to call it, in fact. Loss of contact with the the nature of the awakened heart. the truth, the dharma. This path and practice is inviting us to rediscover that, to understand and know directly for ourselves what that is that the Buddha discovered, that he spoke of as the deathless. The reality of death and contemplating this is a very direct imperative to us to let go. To let go of what we hold on to. All that we have will one day be taken. In fact, this is the fourth of the daily contemplations. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing will become otherwise, will become separated from me. All of it will be lost. And yet, in not holding on to anything, in allowing ourselves to be that immediate, that courageously and openly present, right where we are, the possibility of discovery, of revelation, of realization is very near, is very immediate, alive and tangible. We can be touched by that of which the Buddha speaks as the end, dukkha, the release of suffering. The realization that is deathless. And for this, letting go is worth it. To not take birth in our experience, to not define ourselves by what is happening here in terms of experiential forms, expressions, colors and flavors, concepts and feelings. All of this flows through the space of this moment, of this conscious sensitive aliveness that is here and that we know. Finish with a poem by Red Hawk. He's a Native American elder. He writes, The time comes when it is easier to die. We have to go deeper inside, like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough, and it is no longer worth it to get up out of the bed. The morning is cold. The grey clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you. Men will cease to be thrilled with you. And your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. 
You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year into your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken. While death storms and rages around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag full of bones. So there's no trick in this. come to know for ourselves the heart of this life. And what it means to abide therein. So let's have a few quiet moments together. So may we all find the courage in our hearts to meet in our practice that which we find not easy to meet. And may a deepening of our encounter with birth and death reveal the truth of life. That is immediate and deathless for our own well being and freedom, for the welfare and freedom of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.